0: You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully.
1: Greetings, comrades! This time, we return to the Stalin series. Right now, chronographically, we are at the point when Stalin has defeated everyone, except Trotsky. So, we'll be going there for this episode, but it is important to talk about the tools of destruction first. Namely, Stalin's own contribution to the Soviet society, his model of thinking, which would define Stalinism as such, this bureaucratic rule of the state. This shall also provide the ideological background for the events that are about to happen later in our story. And yeah, of course, we are talking about socialism as a single country, because this is the basis for collectivization, for five-year plans, and for, you know, how Stalin treated his own thing. Obviously, this has been reflected in the Soviet jokes as well. For example, and here we return to the Armenian radio, everyone's favorite. <clears throat> Armenian radio gets asked... Can you build socialism in one separate country? Armenian Radio answers. Well, yes you can, but then you'll probably need to move somewhere else. And another one. Armenian Radio gets asked. Can a common person buy a car? Armenian Radio cannot give an answer for two days straight. They're still laughing about this. And then there's the third one, which kind of goes in, (laughs) and tying in with our previous episode... Soviet Union recognizes three deviant minority types of love. Love of a man towards another man, love of a woman towards another woman, and love of a socialistic country towards another socialistic country. This all ties in neatly. This kind of shows you the respect that Stalin's own political theory got. It was a pretty interesting thing how he managed to warp things. See, Stalin in December 1924 put forward the so far unheard of idea that socialism could be built in Russia without the victory of the working class and the rest of developed countries. This idea went to counter to everything Lenin had tried to explain, even the documents Stalin quoted. Lenin went no further than to point out that in Russia, the political conditions for socialist transformation, which was a workers' regime supported by the peasantry, had been created by the October Revolution. At no stage, really, did Lenin entertain the illusion that the economical preconditions existed at that time very backwards Russia. And as late as February 1924, Stalin himself had still preached the exact opposite of socialism in one country. And a small quote here. Can the final victory of socialism in one country be attained without the joint efforts of the proletariat of several advanced countries? No, this is impossible. For the final victory of socialism, for the organization of socialist production, the efforts of one country, particularly of such a peasant country as Russia, are insufficient. For this, the efforts of the proletarians of several advanced countries are necessary. This, by the way, comes from uh, Woods and Grant, Lenin and Trotsky, what they really stood for, from the pages 108 and 109. I've decided to put more direct references to what I quote here. However, in a couple of months, Stalin took a completely different line. Quote, if we knew in advance that we are not equal to the task of building socialism in Russia by itself, then why the devil did we have to make the October Revolution? If we have managed for eight years, why should we not manage in the ninth, 10th, or 40th year? Which comes from Carr, Socialism and Country, Volume 2, page 189. So what made Stalin turn his ideas upside down? Basically, this was the stuff that we have been talking about in the previous episodes. It was the changing balance of the forces that emboldened the non-theorist Stalin to throw down the gauntlet to all the purely theorists of Marxism. And even though Stalin was a non-theorist, he was an opportunist. He knew his tactics very well. Strategy and planning was not his strongest suits, but as a tactician, he was excellent. He did have long-reaching plans, though, and when he made a decision, he stuck to it. If you remember from the previous narrative episode, the opposition, the ideas of Marxism and the class demands of the workers were being silenced, while the bureaucracy, which was getting increasingly arrogant and powerful, were prevailing. This is the creation of the machine state. The idea of revolutionary struggle against capitalism internationally, this permanent revolution of Trotsky, was entirely alien to the new masters of the Soviet Union, which Stalin had put forth by stuffing Central Committee and Communist Party with, you know, his new men. Stalin's actually thoroughly dishonest argument was, well, not exactly a theory in the truest sense of the word, as an attempt to explain reality. This was nothing more at this point than an attempt at burying the program of permanent revolution, of Marxism itself, to speak clearly and of the position, which was supported by Trotsky. Because Trotsky still needed to go down. To cover their tracks, the bureaucracy increasingly altered party history and Marxist textbooks to make it appear to the workers that their policy was the consistent continuation of Bolshevism. See, and this also gets involved by the last time I mentioned that Stalin did a literacy program. And guess what? He presented his Stalinist views and this altered party program as his own, and this is what people learn to read by. By November 1926, for example, Stalin felt able to declare, quote, the party always took as its starting point the idea that the victory of socialism is one country means the possibility to build socialism in that country, and that its task can be accomplished by the forces of only a single country. Again, Woods and Grant here. Taken to its conclusion, Stalin's so-called theory denied the need for a revolutionary international. Defense of so-called socialism... Well, at this point, it's turning into Stalinism. In the Soviet Union, in contrast to the building of socialism through world revolution, now became the primary task of the communist parties internationally. In practice, this meant uncritical, unthinking support of the policies and national interests of the Soviet bureaucracy. And yeah, in 1943, in the middle of the World War II, which we'll get to and those series are going to be like super serious, Stalin confirmed this in the most blatant manner when he dissolved the Comintern. Then, a bureaucratic shell by that point, at the stroke of a pen, in order to prove to his, you know, wartime allies, the, um, imperialist leaders, Roosevelt and Churchill, that the Soviet leadership had abandoned all thought of World Revolution. But, this commentary from various historians, from which most come from the West, yeah, that's kinda not enough uh, to explain what this socialism in one country really is. So let's, again, take a good look at our good friend Koba's speech. This one's called October Revolution and the Tactics of the Russian Communists. December 17th, 1921. This is one he used to blast Zinoviev to smithereens, which I mentioned again in the last Stalin episode. So, here goes Koba. <clears throat> What do we mean by the possibility of the victory of socialism in one country? We mean the possibility of solving the contradictions between the proletariat and the peasantry with the aid of the internal forces of our country. The possibility of the proletariat assuming power and using that power to build a complete socialist society in our country with the sympathy and the support of the proletarians of other countries, but without the preliminary victory of the proletarian revolution in those other countries. Without such a possibility... The building of socialism is building without prospects. Building without being sure that socialism will be built. Yes, it's tautologies everywhere, and of course, it doesn't really have to make sense at Stalin, about bureaucracy. It is no use building socialism without being sure that we can build it, without being sure that the technical backwardness of our country is not an insuperable obstacle to the building of complete socialist society. To deny such possibility is to display lack of faith in the case of building socialism, to abandon Leninism. What do we mean by the impossibility of the complete final victory of socialism in one country without the victory of the revolution in other countries? We mean the impossibility of having full guarantees against intervention and consequently against the restoration of the bourgeoisie order, without the victory of the revolution in at least a number of countries. To deny this indisputable thesis is to abandon internationalism, to abandon Leninism. We are living, says Lenin, not merely in a state, but in a system of states, and the existence of Soviet Republic side by side with imperial states for a long time is unthinkable. One or the other must triumph in the end. And before that end, supervenes a series of frightful collisions between the Soviet Republic and the bourgeoisie states, and that is inevitable. That means that if the ruling class, the proletariat, wants to hold sway, it must prove its capacity to do so by military organization also. We now have before us, says Lenin in another place, an extremely unstable equilibrium, but an unquestionable, undisputable, a certain equilibrium nevertheless. Will it last long? I cannot tell, nor, I think, can anyone tell. And therefore we must exercise the greatest possible caution. And the first precept of our policy, the first lesson to be learned from our governmental activities during the past year, the lesson which all the workers and peasants must learn, is that we must be on the alert. We must remember that we are surrounded by people, classes and governments who openly express their intense hatred for us. We must remember that we are at all times, but at a hair's breadth from every manner of invasion. Clear, one would think. Where does Zinoviev stand on the question of the victory of socialism on the country? Listen, when we speak of the final victory of socialism, we mean this much. At least, one, the abolition of classes, and, therefore, two, the abolition of the dictatorship of one class, in this case, the dictatorship of a proletariat. If we are to get a clearer idea of how the question stands here in the USSR in the year 1925, says Zinoviev further, we must distinguish between two things. Number one. The assured possibility of engaging in building socialism. Such a possibility, it stands to reason, is quite conceivable within the limits of one country. And number two. The complete construction and consolidation of socialism, i.e. the achievement of a socialist system of a socialist society, which is to be acquired by the expansion of our bureaucracy. Ah, nice one here. What can all this signify? It signifies that by the final victory of socialism in one country, Zinoviev means... Not the guarantee against intervention and restoration, but the possibility of completely building socialist society. And by the victory of socialism in one country, Zinoviev means the sort of socialist construction which cannot and should not lead to the complete building of socialism. Haphazard construction, construction without prospects, building socialism through the complete construction of socialist society is impossible. Such is Zinoviev's position. To build socialism without the possibility of completing it, to build knowing that it cannot be completed, such are the absurdities in which Zinovyev has involved himself into. But this is a mockery of the question, not a solution of it. Here is another extract from Zinovyev's concluding speech at the 14th Party Congress. And if you remember, that's the Congress where Stalin completely took over everything. Take for instance the thing Comrade Yakovlev said at the last Kursk Provincial Party conference. He asks... Is it possible for us, surrounded as we are on all sides by capitalist enemies, to build socialism in one country under such conditions? And he answers, On the basis of all that has been said, we have a right to say not only that we are building socialism, but that in spite of the fact that for the time being we are alone, that for the time being we are the only Soviet country, the only Soviet state in the world, we shall complete the building of socialism. Is this the Leninist method of presenting the question? Does this not smack of national narrow-mindedness? Thus, according to Zinoviev, the recognition of the possibility of building socialism in one country signifies the adoption of the point of view of national narrow-mindedness, while the denial of such possibility signifies the adoption of the point of view of internationalism. But, if this be true, is it all worthwhile fighting for victory over the capitalist elements in our economy? Does it not follow from this that such a victory is impossible? Capitulation to the capitalist elements in our economy, that is where the inherent logic of Zinoviev's line of argument leads us. And this absurdity, which has nothing in common with Leninism, is presented to us by Zinoviev as internationalism, as 100% Leninism. I assert that on this most important question of building socialism, Zinoviev is deserting Leninism and slipping into the standpoint of Menshenik Sukhanov. Let us turn to Lenin. Here's what he said about the victory of socialism in one country even before the October Revolution in August 1915. Uneven economic and political development is an absolute law of capitalism. Hence, the victory of socialism is possible first in several or even in one capitalist country taken singly. The victorious proletariat of that country having expropriated the capitalists, and I love the word expropriated, "...and organize its own socialist production would stand up against the rest of the world, the capitalist world, attracting to its cause the oppressed classes of other countries, raising revolts in those countries against the capitalists, and, in the event of necessity, coming out even with armed force against the exploiting classes and their states." What does Lenin mean by the phrase, having organized its own socialist production, which I have emphasized? He means that the proletariat of the victorious country, having seized power, can and must organize socialist production. And what does it mean to organize socialist production? It means to build a socialist society. It is hardly necessary to prove that Lenin's clear and definite statement needs no further comment. Well, you know, because whatever Uncle Joe says obviously needs no other comment. You just try to comment that and, uh, well, there's too much death on the show, I'm just gonna tell you, uh, got a nice cake or something. Carrying on. If it were otherwise, Lenin's call for seizure of power by the proletariat in October 1917 would be incomprehensible. You see that Lenin's lucid thesis in comparison with Zorviyev's meddled and anti-Leninist thesis that we can engage in building socialism within the limits of one country. Although it's impossible to build it's as different from the latter as the sky from the earth. And statement here is that I have read the, these quotes and speeches multiple times and like... The differences are, um, yeah, whatever Stalin said, basically. The statement quoted above was made by Lenin in 1915, before the proletariat had taken power. But perhaps he modified his views after power had been taken, after 1917. Let's turn to his pamphlet, On Cooperation, written in 1923. As a matter of fact, says Lenin, the power of state over all large-scale means of production, the power of state in the hands of the proletariat, the alliance of this proletariat with the many millions of small and very small peasants, the assured leadership of the peasantry by the proletariat, etc., is not this all that is necessary in order to build a complete socialist society from the cooperatives, from the cooperatives alone, which we formerly treated as huskering, and which, from a certain aspect, we have the right to treat as such now under the new economic policy. Is it not all that is necessary for the purpose of building a complete socialist society? This is not yet the building of socialist society, but it is all that is necessary and sufficient for this building. In other words, Stalin says, we can and must build a complete socialist society, for we have at our disposal all that is necessary and sufficient for this purpose. This is what another of our soon to exit the stage pals, would call the betrayal of the system. And thankfully, we have his comments on this whole thing as well. This is what Trotsky calls the betrayal of the revolution, and this is the part one of it. Well, I've uh, abbreviated it, obviously. It's still pretty long. But this is what Trotsky would later write as a response to this speech given previously by Stalin. Quote, reactionary tendencies of autarchy are a defense reflex of senile capitalism to the task which history confronts it, that of freeing its economy from the fetters of private property and the national state, and organizing it in a planned manner through the earth. In Lenin's Declaration of the Rights of the Toiling and Exploited People, presented by the Soviet of People's Commissars for the approval of the Constituent Assembly during his brief hours of life, the so-called fundamental task of the new regime was thus defined, quote, "...the establishment of a socialist organization of society and the victory of socialism in all countries." The international character of the revolution was thus written into the basic document of the new regime, and no one at the time would have dared present the problem otherwise. In April 1924, three months after the death of Lenin, Stalin wrote in his brochure of compilations called The Foundations of Leninism, For the overthrow of the bourgeoisie, the efforts of one country are enough. To this, the history of our revolution testifies. For the final victory of socialism, for organization of socialist production, the efforts of one country, especially a peasant country like ours, are not enough. For this, we must have the efforts of the proletariats of several advanced countries these lines need no comment the edition in which they were printed however has then been withdrawn from circulation the large-scale defeats of the european proletariat and the very first modest economic successes of the soviet union suggested to stalin in the autumn of 1924 the idea that the historic mission of the soviet bureaucracy was to build socialism in a single country Around this question there developed a discussion which to many superficial minds seemed academic or scholastic, but which in reality reflected the incipient degeneration of the Third International and prepared the way for the Fourth. Petrov, the former communist, now a white émigré, whom we have already quoted in previous chapters of the book, well, Trotsky did, but I'm not gonna look at these, tells from his own memories how fiercely the younger generation of administrators and bureaucrats opposed the doctrine of the dependence of the Soviet Union upon the international evolution. How is it possible that we in our own country cannot contrive to build a happy life? If Marx says it otherwise, that means we are no Marxists, we are Russian Bolsheviks, that's what. To these recollections of disputes in the middle of the 20s, Petrov adds, "...today I cannot but think that the theory of building socialism in one country was not a mere Stalinist intention." Completely true. It expressed unmistakably the mood of the bureaucracy. When speaking of the victory of socialism, they meant their own victory, the expansion of the machine. In justifying this break with the Marxist tradition of internationalism, Stalin was unconscious enough to remark that Marx and Engels were not unacquainted with the lack of uneven development of capitalism, supposedly discovered by Lenin, on a catalogue of intellectual curiosities that remark ought really to occupy a foremost place. Unevenness of development permeates the whole history of mankind, and especially the history of capitalism. A young Russian historian and economist, Solnitz, a man of exceptional gifts and moral qualities, tortured to death in the prisons of the Soviet bureaucracy for membership in the left opposition, offered in 1926 a superlative theoretical study of the law of uneven development in Marx. It could not, of course, be printed in the Soviet Union. Also under the ban, although for reasons of an opposite nature, is the work of the long-dead-and-forgotten German social-democrat Volmar, who as early as 1878 developed the perspective of an isolated socialist state. Not for Russia, but for Germany, mind you, containing references to this law of uneven development which is supposed to have been unknown until Lenin. Socialism unconditionally assumes economically developed relations, wrote Georg Wollmar. And if the question were limited to them alone, socialism ought to be strongest where the economical development is highest. But the thing does not stand that way at all. England is undoubtedly the most developed country economically, yet we see that socialism plays there a very secondary role, which in economically less developed Germany, socialism has already such power that the entire old society no longer feels stable. Referring to the multitude of historic factors which determine the course of events, Volmar continued, quote, It is clear that with an interrelation of such innumerable forces the development of any general human movement could not and cannot be identical in the matter of time and from even in two countries to say nothing at all. Socialism obeys the same law. The assumption of a simultaneous victory of socialism in all cultured countries is absolutely ruled out, as is also and for the same reasons the assumption that all the rest of civilized states will immediately and inevitably imitate the example of a socialistically organized state. Thus, Volmar concludes, we arrive at the isolated socialist state, concerning which I trust have proven that it is, although not the only possibility, nevertheless the greatest possibility. In this work, written when Lenin was eight years old, the law of uneven development receives a far more correct interpretation than that to be found among the Soviet epigons beginning with the autumn of 1924. We must remark, incidentally, that in this part of his investigation, Volmar, a very second-rate theoretician, according to Trotsky, no less, is only paraphrasing the thoughts of Engels, to whom, we are told, the law of unevenness of capital development, according to Stalin, remain unknown. The isolated socialist state has long ceased to be a hypothesis and became a fact, in Russia to be sure, not in Germany. But this very fact of isolation is also a precise expression of the relative strength of world capitalism, the relative weakness of socialism. From an isolated socialist state to a socialist society, once for all done, where the state remains a long historical road, and this road exactly coincides with the road of international revolution. Beatrice and Cindy Webb, on their part, assure us that Marx and Engels did not believe in the possibility of building an isolated socialist society, only because neither of them, quote, had ever dreamt, end quote, of such a powerful weapon as the monopoly of foreign trade. One can hardly read these lines from the aged authors without embarrassment. The taking over by the state of commercial banks and companies, railroads, mercantile marine is as necessary a measure of the socialist revolution as the nationalization of the means of production. Again, remember, Trotsky not as a nice guy that some try to portray him as, because, you know, he was a communist through and through. But his shtick is the world thing. Carrying on from Trotsky including the means employed in the export branches of industry. The monopoly of foreign trade is nothing but a concentration in the hands of the state, one of the material instruments of export and import. To say that Marx and Engels never dreamt of the monopoly of foreign trade is to say that they never dreamt of the socialist revolution. To complete the picture, we made note that in the work of the above court at Volmar, the monopoly of foreign trade is presented, quite correctly, as one of the most important instruments of the so-called isolated socialist state. Marx and Engels must then have learned about this secret from Volmar, had he himself not learned it earlier from them.
0: Hey everyone, Annette here. As always, a big thank you to our Patreons for their support. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Borders page on Patreon.com. To change things up this Christmas, we decided it would be nice for you to get to know the people behind the show better. So we have two special episodes for you this Christmas. One where you will get to meet Chantel, Christophe's fiancée, as well as an episode with me and Calvis. Remember that you can also keep up to date with the eastern border and its crew on our Discord server and social media like Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. On a personal note, a shout out to everyone who might be listening to us from Strasbourg, France, where we had a terrorist attack yesterday evening at the Christmas market. I am so sad to see this happen here, to see my city so quiet and deserted. My heart goes out to everyone affected by this senseless violence, and I wish it would stop.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is
0: second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the
1: ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code
0: LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company
1: that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which So, uh, let's get back to how Trotsky bashes Stalin. The theory, the THEORY, of socialism in one country, a theory never expounded by the way, or given any foundation by Stalin himself, comes down to the sufficiently sterile and unhistoric notion that, thanks to the natural riches of the country, a socialist society can be built within the geographic confines of the Soviet Union. With the same success, you might affirm that socialism could triumph in the population of the earth where a twelfth of what it is. In reality, however, the purpose of this new theory was to introduce into social consciousness a far more concrete system of ideas, namely, quote, The revolution is wholly completed, social contradictions will steadily soften, the kulak will gradually grow into socialism, the development as a whole, regardless of the events in the external world, will preserve a peaceful and planned character. Bukharin, in an attempt to give some foundation to the theory, declared it unshakably proven that, "...we shall not perish owing to the class differences within our country and our technical backwardness, that we can build socialism even on this pauper technical basis, that this growth of socialism will be many times slower, that we will crawl with a tortoise tempo, and that nevertheless we are building this socialism and we will build it." We remark the formula Build socialism even on a pauper technical basis, and we recall once more the genial intuition of the young Marx. With a low technical basis, only want will be generalized and with want the struggle of necessities begins again and the old crap must revive. In April 1926, at a plenum of the Central Committee, the following amendment to the theory of the Tortoise Tempo was introduced by the left opposition. It would be a fundamental error to think that in a capitalist environment we can go towards socialism at an arbitrary tempo. Our further approach to socialism will be ensured only on condition that the distance separating our industry from the advanced capitalist industry shall not increase but clearly and palpably decrease. Stalin, with this good reason, declared this amendment a masked attack upon the theory of socialism in the country, and categorically rejected the very inclination to link up the tempo of domestic construction with the conditions of the international development. Here is what he said verbatim, according to the stenographic report of the plenum. Quote, Whomever drags in here an international factor does not understand the very form of the question. He is either confused in the matter because he does not understand it, or he is consciously trying to confuse the question. This amendment of the opposition was rejected, but the illusion of a socialism to be built at a tortoise tempo on a pauper basis in an environment of powerful enemies did not long withstand the blows of criticism. In November of the same year, in the 15th party conference, without a word of preparation the press acknowledged that it would be necessary in a relatively, and what does that mean no one knows, minimal historical period to catch up to and then surpass the level of industrial development in the advanced capitalist countries. The left opposition, at any rate, was here surpassed. But in advancing this slogan, catch up to and surpass the whole world in a minimal period, yesterday's theorists of the tortoise tempo had fallen captive to the same international factor of which the Soviet bureaucracy had such a superstitious fear. Thus, in the course of eight months, the first and purest version of the Stalinist theory was liquidated. Socialism must inevitably surpass capitalism in all spheres, wrote the left opposition in a document illegally distributed in March 1927. But, in present, the question is not of relation of socialism to capitalism in general, but to the economical development of the Soviet Union in relation to Germany, England, and the United States. What is to be understood by the phrase, minimal historic period? A whole series of future five-year plans will leave us far from the level of advanced countries of the West. What will be happening in the capitalist world during this time? If you admit the possibility of its flourishing anew for a period of decades, then the talk of socialism in our backward country is a pitable tripe. Then it will be necessary to say that we were mistaken in our reprisal of the whole epoch as an epoch of capitalist decay. Then the Soviet Republic will prove to have been the second experiment in proletarian dictatorship since the Paris Commune. Broader and more fruitful, but only an experiment. Is there, however, any serious ground for such a decisive reconsideration of our whole epoch and of the meaning of the October Revolution as a link to an international revolution? Of course not. In finishing, to a more or less complete extent, their period of reconstruction after the war, the capitalist countries are reviving, and reviving in an incomparably sharper form, all the old pre-war contradictions, domestic and international. This is the basis of the proletarian revolution. It is a fact that we are building socialism. A greater fact, however, and not a less, since the whole world, in general, is greater than the parts, is the preparation of a European and world revolution. The part can conquer only together with the whole. The European proletariat needs a far shorter period for its takeoff to the seizure of power than we need to catch up technically with Europe and America. We must, meanwhile, systematically narrow the distance separating our productivity of labor from that of the rest of the world. The more we advance, the less danger there is of possible intervention by low prices and consequently by armies. The higher we raise the standard of living of the workers and peasants, the more truly shall we hasten the proletarian revolution in Europe, the sooner will that revolution enrich us with the world technique, and the more truly and genuine will our socialist construction advance as part of European and world construction. This document, just like others, remained without an answer, unless you consider expulsions from the party and arrests and shootings an answer to it. After the abandonment of the idea of a turquoise tempo, it became necessary to renounce the idea, bound up with it, of the kulaks growing into socialism. The administrative extermination of Kulakism, however, gave the theory of socialism in one country a new nourishment. Once classes are fundamentally abolished, this means that socialism is so-called fundamentally achieved. This was stated in 1931. In essence, this formula restored the conception of a socialist society built upon a pauper basis. It was in these days, as we remember, that an official journalist explained that the absence of milk for babies is due for a lack of cows, and not for the shortcomings of the socialist system. A concern for the productivity of labor, however, prevented any long resisting upon the sedative formulae of 1931, which had to serve as a moral compensation for the devastations affected by the complete collectivization. Collectivization, of course, is the thing that we will cover in great detail on further shows, it's just that I truly believe that this whole argument about socialism in country deserves to be looked at from three sides, which I'm doing right now. Some think, Stalin unexpectedly announced in the connection with the Stachanov movement, that socialism can be strengthened by the way of a certain material equalization of the people on the basis of a pauper life. That is not true. In reality, socialism can conquer only on the basis of high productivity of labor, higher than under capitalism. Completely correct. However, at the very same time, the new program of the communist youth, adopted in April 1936, at the same Congress which withdrew from the communist youth its last remnant of political rights, defined the socialist character of the Soviet Union in the following categoristic terms. Quote, the whole national economy of the country has become socialist. Nobody bothers to reconcile these contradictory conceptions. Each one is put into circulation in accord with the demands of the moment. It does not matter, for no one dares to criticize Uncle Stalin. The spokesman of the Congress explained the very necessity of the new program for the communist youth in the following words. The old program contains a deeply mistaken anti-Leninist assertion to the effect that Russia can arrive at socialism only through a world proletarian revolution. This point of the program is basically wrong. It affects Trotskyist views. Those same views, that Trotsky adds, Stalin was defending in April 1924. Aside from that, it remains unexplained how a program written in 1921 by Bukharin and carefully gone over by the Politburo with the participation of Lenin could turn out 15 years to be Trotskist and have to be revised to an exactly opposite effect. But logical arguments are powerless where it is a question of interests. Having won their independence from the proletariat of their own country, the Stalin bureaucracy cannot recognize the dependence of the Soviet Union upon the world for proletariat. The law of uneven development brought it about the contradiction between the technique and property relations of capitalism shattered the weakest link in the world chain. Backward Russian capitalism was the first to pay for the bankruptcy of the world capitalism. The law of uneven development is supplemented through the world course of history by the law of combined development. The collapse of the bourgeoisie in Russia led to the proletarian dictatorship. That is, to a backward countries leaping ahead of the advanced countries. However, the establishment of socialist forms of property in the backward country came up against the inadequate level of technique and culture. Itself, born of the contradictions between his world productive forces and capitalist forms of property, the October Revolution produced, in its turn, a contradiction between low national productive forces and socialist forms of property. To be sure, the isolation of the Soviet Union did not have those immediate dangerous consequences which might have been feared. The capitalist world was too disorganized and paralyzed to unfold to the full extent its potential power. The breathing spell proved longer than a critical optimism had dared to hope, However, isolation and the impossibility of using the resources of world economy, even upon capitalistic basis, the amount of foreign trade, by the way, at this point when Trotsky wrote this, had decreased from 1913 like four or five times, especially in grain, as Soviet Union exported way less grain even like it's collapsed than, you know, uh, the Russian Empire in 1913. All of this, and continuing from Trotsky again, entailed, along with enormous expenditures upon military defense, an extremely disadvantageous allocation of productive forces, and a slow rising of the standard of the living of masses. But a more malign product of isolation and backwardness has been the octopus of bureaucratism. This is where Trotsky really smashes the Stalin system, and uh, this final part of his prologue uh, of my abbreviation of all this stuff is really important now. So, quote... <clears throat> Jurisdictional and political standards set up by the revolution exercised the progressive action upon the backward economy. But upon the other hand, they themselves felt the lowering influence of that backwardness. The longer the Soviet Union remains in a capitalist environment, the deeper runs the degeneration of the social fabric. A prolonged isolation would inevitably end not in national communism, but in the restoration of capitalism. If a bourgeoisie cannot peacefully grow into a socialist democracy, it is likewise true that the socialist state cannot peacefully merge with the world capitalist system. On the historic order of the day stands not the peaceful social development of one country, but a long series of world disturbances, wars and revolutions. So yeah, this is what Trotsky would want, after world revolution, carrying on. Disturbances are inevitable also in the domestic life of the Soviet Union, which truly happened if you look at the Prague Spring and Hungary and what happened later on. If the bureaucracy was compelled in the struggle for a planned economy to de-kulakize the kulak, the working class will be compelled in the struggle for socialism to de-bureaucratize the bureaucracy. Because Trotsky here states that with the Stalin bureaucracy, no true socialist country can be achieved. Then again, Trotsky also wants the whole world to burn. However, and this is the Trotsky's most powerful message, on the tomb of the socialist bureaucracy of the Stalinist system will be inscribed the epitaph. Here lies the theory of socialism in one country. The problem is, you could also state that, on the tomb of Trotsky, one could write Here lies the end of the world revolution. So what does this whole thing mean? I'm trying to explain it to my best, but still. You see, Marx, on its own, had expected socialism, the first phase of communism, to drive hard on the heels of revolution. Again, this was a view which was modified by Lenin, who stated that socialism, by which he meant an economically and culturally advanced society, with machine technology and engaging populace participating actively in the process of government, would have to be built, and that its construction would be, well, quite a long process, really. According to Lenin, the transformation could never occur in Russia alone, it would require the most active cooperation of at least several advanced countries, among which, at that point, Lenin stated, we certainly cannot classify Russia. Thus, for the orthodox Marxist-Leninist, the Russian Revolution was part of a wider movement. It couldn't stand alone. However, by the end of 1925, the prospects for further revolution were poor. And again, internationalists like Trotsky, Radek, and Zinoviev, yeah, these guys had worked for a revolution in Germany in the wake of the French occupation of the Ruhr and the ensuing inflation, but, again, this had come to nothing. It was clear, at least to Stalin, and, you know everyone else, who was like less doctrinaire leaders, that whatever Marx might have prophesied, Russia would have to pursue its revolution alone. So, again, as you heard from my long direct quotations, in the latter months of 1924, as part of his campaign against Trotsky, because, again, this was Trotsky's tool of destruction, how Stalin brought Trotsky down, Stalin and his research assistants truly made a kind of ingenious use of Lenin's writings, as we heard, to turn this ideology on its head. They came up with some lines Lenin had written in 1915 which basically maintained that in view of the unequal development of capitalism in various lands, this unequal development thing, Revolution too might develop unequally and, you know, break out on a single country. Stalin used this passage to justify his own weird-ass theory, socialism is one country which is, well, what we're trying to explain to you here. Basically, this means that although the cooperation of the proletariat of several countries is necessary to guard against the restoration of a bourgeoisie order, it was possible to build socialism in one country alone. The qualification is important, and that is why I gave you those long, long texts, because this basically develops and starts the myth of capitalist encirclement. Russia, if left in peace, could complete this revolution and build socialism in isolation but it depended for its security upon world revolution, for this alone could guarantee Russia the police it needed to complete the process. And now again, to train Marxists just as Trotsky, Stalin's so-called theory appeared, well, hilarious. We know that Radek collapsed with laughter when he heard the formulation in which he saw further evidence of the General Secretary's stupidity, for one. Why, he wondered, did Stalin restrict himself to socialism in one country? What was wrong with socialism in one district or even one street? In the meantime, Stalin, not letting any resource go to waste, used his formula to attack both Trotsky and Zinoviev, who, by the way, were Jews, so, you know, some anti-Semitism climbs in here as well. They were also internationalists, as we heard. Stalin skillfully misrepresented their view that the Russian Revolution must necessarily be succeeded by others who suggest that they lacked patriotism. For all his lack of Marxist orthodoxy, Stalin, you know, Our uncle Koba is always smart enough to know just exactly what he was doing. The notion of socialism in one country appealed to those millions who were unfamiliar with the philosophy of Karl Marx, who were also, you know, frankly mistrustful of Jews and foreigners, and deeply imbued with that, you know, great Russian chauvinism which Lenin was used to castigate. To many ignorant enthusiasts of the age of Trotsky's internationalism, that thing was dismaying, while Stalin, in his own hand, brought reassurance. The new doctrine also suggested that Lenin's cautious defense to market forces and the peasantry was, well, unnecessary, and it came to be regarded as the negation of the whole NIP. Stalin, therefore, appealed to Bolshevik idealists who considered that policy to have been an unholy compromise with the spirit of capitalism and who still looked back, well, with a ton of nostalgia, for some reason, but there were such, to the days of war communism. In the mid-twenties, there was still a considerable fund of enthusiasm and revolutionary idealism, both in the party and among the young. Cause, you know, they learned to read this way. Stalin's doctrine appealed to these idealists, who wanted to industrialize rapidly and at all costs, and who wanted to build their socialism right now, right then. Critics of the policy who preached caution and gradualism were considered negative skeptics, if not worse. At a stroke, and perhaps to like his surprise, Stalin had created a rallying point of these communist idealists. As the future General Grigoryenko wrote, quote, I read the lessons of October, and I feel lost. I despaired. Was Trotsky really correct? Were we really unable to create a socialist society? Would we really perish without world revolution? I did not want to live, I did not want to think. I was not the kind of person to wait for others to help me. I had to act. He then read Stalin's refutation of Trotsky. With his characteristic simplicity, he refuted Trotsky's arguments point by point. It appeared that socialism in one country could not only be built, but can be completed. The delay in World Revolution would not hold us back. From then on I carried Stalin's article wherever I went and kept explaining its significance to my friends. It was my weapon in the struggle against Trotsky. See, Stalin recognized that the notion of Russian socialism was a handy one and a perfect stick to which to belabour Trotsky. The stick, he'd beat Trotsky to death, uh, at one point, just, you know, replaced by a friendly, you know, neighborhood ice pick. More importantly, it was a notion that I think Stalin really believed in. This notion of socialism in one country kind of appeals to Stalin's chauvinism and his isolationistic conception of the state, echoing his mistrust of, you know, Leningrad, which was always looking west. According to Stalin's conception, Russia would go at it alone, while doing everything in its power to secure its frontiers by revolution or conquest, in order to preserve itself from capitalist interference. Here, I'm gonna, you know, jump ahead a bit, but this also, like I said, everything that Stalin will do further on stems from this socialism on country. In a way, they think that this also defined USSR role in World War II, which, at this point, I think Stalin considered inevitable. Russia could not stand idly by, it was obliged to involve itself, but it would ensure that it would be the last nation to do so. In other words, Stalin wanted to fight in the Second World War, but if you follow his ideological doctrine and his, like, strong views of socialism as a single country and all of this, sources state, but but I also personal believe that uh, Stalin really wanted to the all the opposing sides, allies, and Axis to basically fight each other to a standstill before he was supposed to take a hand. And uh, I personally think that diplomats and politicians who were like horrified and surprised by the Hitler Stalin Pact of 1939, the molotov Ribbentrop Pact, as they had earlier been by the discovery of, you know, aggressive intentions of Hitler as outlined in my Kampf, at this point I think they had once again failed to do their homework. But on this show, we're definitely gonna do our homework, and of course I can only provide theories, but I'll do my best to do so. So, let's speak about the sad fate of Trotsky, finally, as this is what this episode has been leading on to. See, in July 1926, Lashkevich, a Zinovievite, who was Voroshilov's deputy war commissar, was accused for organizing opportunist groups of the Red Army and was dismissed. Stalin seized the opportunity to expel Zinoviev from Politburo, like we mentioned in the last episode. On October the 4th, all the major opposition leaders replied with a statement admitting violation of the party statutes and pledging disbandment of the opposition but they could not refrain from repeating their policy criticisms of the Politburo majority. Stalin's reply, as all these talks have been about his new theory of socialism in the country, Stalin's reply was to remove Trotsky from the Politburo and Zinoviev from the presidency of the Comintern. However, lesser figures in the opposition leadership were allowed to recant and obtain well-publicized rewards for the submission. At the end of October 1926, the 15th party conference sanctioned all these maneuvers and applauded Stalin's description of the opposition leaders as social-democratic deviators who were reverting to the light of Second International. By the beginning of 1927, the left opposition had thus lost any immediate hope of success, but its leaders were not yet silenced. Trotsky and his colleagues attacked the Politburo of thermidorism, degeneration, Menshevism, betrayal, treachery, kulak, nepman policy against the workers, against the poor peasants, against the Chinese revolution. As the Stalinist writer Popov sums it up. The opposition leaders were to blame the Politburo majority for a series of foreign setbacks. Britain's rupture of diplomatic relations with the USSR, the assassination of the Soviet ambassador of Warsaw, and especially the crushing of the Chinese communists by Chiang Kai-shek. In an article submitted to Pravda, Trotsky climaxed opposition criticism by calling on his adherents to follow the example of Clemenceau, who had opened the way to take over the French Premier by attacking his predecessor's failures in World War I. In case war engulfed the USSR, which by then, was a prospect taken seriously by the communists in 1927. However, advocating a change of government was dangerous, as Soviet Union. If, as August communists agreed, the existing regime represented the proletariat, then any move to change it was bound to be anti-proletarian and therefore treasonable. For that reason, Stalin promptly engineered the expulsion of Trotsky and Zinoviev from the Central Committee. After the two men led street demonstrations on the 10th anniversary of October Revolution, November 7, 1927, they were expelled from the party. The way was now clear for Stalin to oust the opposition from the party en mass. The 15th Congress in December 1927 decreed as much. It might have been expected that Stalin's tactics would have drawn his opponents together, but on the contrary, the result was that they were neatly split down in the middle. Trotsky refused to accept the Congress decision and was thereupon exiled to Alma Ata in Central Asia. But Zinoviev and Kamenev submitted and renounced their earlier stated views. They were permitted to crawl back into the party. As far as the Soviet Communist Party and the Comintern were concerned, the controversy between Stalin and Trotsky was now at an end. The followers of Trotsky left what they henceforth called Stalinist ranks, and attempted to build their own parties and organize them into the Fourth International. The dispute shook and divided the Communist parties throughout the world, as no such controversy before or ever since. The immediately ensuing struggle between Stalin and Bukharin had fewer repercussions abroad, for it seemed to center on the peasant, from whom most Communists never had any use. By 1927, however, Trotsky and his sympathizers had given up any immediate hope of overcoming Stalin's ascendancy from within the Russian party. They declared that a bureaucracy had come to power in the USSR, and that was true, by the way, and that it must be eliminated. This assertion was difficult to explain on Marxist grounds unless it were to be on the basis of Marx's analysis of the oriental society, and the Trotskites shrank from that. Since Trotsky continued to believe that of socialism still existed in the USSR, it was also difficult to think of any way through which the Stalinist leadership could be displaced without disturbing the economic foundation. As a result, the Trotskis had to retreat into a position comparable to that of the pre-war social democrats, opposing all existing governments and declaring that there could be no basic improvement unless they took power. They never managed to do so anywhere. The rank and file of the world's communists had little chance to observe the personal differences and antagonisms between Stalin and Trotsky, and supported one or the other on the basis of their theoretical positions. The differences may then, you know, be shortly formulated in such a way that Trotsky declared that it was impossible to build socialism in Russia because the peasants did not want it. It would only be possible to do so if the workers of the West revolted, and he was right. Stalin declared it was impossible to wait for the western workers to revolt before building socialism because they were not likely to revolt in the immediate future therefore socialism could be built in Russia only if the party used the peasantry and he was also right however that the western workers were not communist Trotsky would never admit he could only assert that they would be soon the Russian peasants were not communist Stalin also could never admit that but he could try to compel them to be he could force them to be which is something that we shall start talking about in the next episode as he truly builds his socialism on state. As a result, Trotsky retreated into utopianism, while Stalin proceeded to establish a minority bureaucratic dictatorship fully built on terror. You see, during this period, Stalin's wife, Nadezhda bore him his third child, Svetlana, in February of 1926. Nadezhda, who may have suffered from depression, was unhappy in their marriage, which always took a backseat at Stalin's political work. She left him at times to stay with her relatives, and the couple eventually slept in separate beds. Even more unhappy, however, was Yakov, Stalin's son from his first marriage, who came to live with them in the mid-twenties. A general young man, Yakov never got along well with his father, who ridiculed his son's weakness, which might have led to Yakov's suicide attempt in the later part of that decade. After hearing of the attempt, Stalin purposely said, Ha! He couldn't even shoot straight. By 1928, meanwhile, Bukharin was sufficiently alarmed over Stalin's growing power to seek a reconciliation with the disgraced leftist Kamenev. His efforts were fruitless, however. Kamenev was convinced that his only hope of survival lay in going along with Stalin, who was now beginning his campaign against the rightists, his previous allies. Having defeated Trotsky, Kamenev, and Zinovyov, he now readmitted the latter two into the party and began to co-opt their ideas, pushing for immediate collectivization of land and rapid state-controlled industrialization, as opposed to more gradualist approach backed by Bukharin, Rykov, and Tomsky. Throughout 1928 and 1929, Stalin gathered support in the Central Committee, and by November 1929, he was powerful enough to have Bukharin removed from Politburo. Earlier in February of that year, Trotsky, who had continued political activity in the Russian East, was expelled from the Soviet Union completely. With Stalin's strongest adversaries thus humbled or eliminated, he stood alone atop the pyramid of the Soviet power. Even if he was tightening his hold on the Politburo, Stalin had pushed his economic program into action. The Five-Year Plan, as it was called, the first of many, set ambitious economic goals implemented by a central agency called the Goss Plan, which would oversee the rapid industrialization process that was intended to bring the Soviet Union toward economic parity with Western Europe and the United States all without any foreign aid. Lenin's new economic policy was abandoned, and the limit market economy that had been allowed to exist in rural areas was, quite literally, liquidated. In its place, Stalin imposed a vast and complex planned economy in which every decision would be made centrally rather than individually. Initially, the five-year plan only called for collectivizing about one-fifth of the rural farm population, but in 1929, Stalin abruptly decided on immediate collectivization of an unprecedented scale. In theory, this meant that individual farm ownership would be abolished and peasants would be consolidated into collective farms, usually averaging three to five thousand acres in size. In practice, the program was an excuse for Marxist class war in rural areas, as the peasantry naturally resisted the government's attempts to make them leave their farms and the government, in response, unleashed deadly force against the wealthy kulaks, the rich peasants who were, according to Stalin's propaganda, exploiting everyone else. The entire notion of kulaks was, in actuality, a Marxist myth, invented during the revolution by Lenin. The richest peasants had all been dispossessed during the civil war in 1918-1920, and there was little violent class animosity remaining in the Russian villages. It was therefore almost impossible for Soviet officials to separate exploiting peasants from exploited peasants, but they were bound by ideology, or rather, Stalin was bound by ideology, and it was his iron will that drove the colonization process. Beginning with his declaration in December 1929, the Soviet Union decided to achieve the liquidation of the kulaks as a class. The entire apparatus of the newly Stalinist state was directed against the peasantry. The results, to put it mildly, were catastrophic. Fifteen million peasants were uprooted from their homes and marched at gunpoint to the country into inhospitable regions, where they were expected to farm or, more realistically, expected to die. In early 1930, the policy has caused too much chaos that Stalin was forced to pull back, and for a time he allowed some peasants to leave the collective farms. This was tantamount to admission of defeat, the but there were no real position left to take advantage of the situation, even as the collectivization was failing. Tomsky and Rykov were forced from the Politburo, putting an end to Bukharin's factions. And over the next two years, the brief retreat came to an end, and the collectivization went forward again with even greater zeal. Hundreds of thousands were shot, and a terrible famine swept over the country, which Stalin allowed to rage unchecked, checked, viewing it as another weapon against the Kulak. Between 4 and 5 million people died in Ukraine alone, and another 2-3 million in the rest of Russia. While the Soviet Union, under Stalin's direction, was exporting 1.7 million tons of grain and keeping millions of tons in state reserves in the case of war. Meanwhile, the class struggle went forward in other areas as well. Churches were destroyed, priests arrested, and vast propaganda campaign conducted against organized religion. And at the same time, supposedly, bourgeoisie influences were removed from the academia, the army, and even engineering. Leaving the Soviet Union bereft of talented men. We are here... For murder, comrades. But the campaign against the Kulaks was the greatest and most pervasive of Stalin terrorists during the era. In scope, ferocity, and cruelty, it does fully warrant comparisons to Hitler's Holocaust. The apparatus of death was cruder than the tightly regimented German system, but the toll was just as high, if not higher. And the ideological fervor bore a striking resemblance to Nazism's strident anti-Semitism. The kulak, the enemy of the people, was treated as a subhuman and demonized just as thoroughly as Germany's Jews. The vast system of labor camps, gulags, that sprang into the being in the early 1930s, it bears comparison to Nazi concentration camps. Vasilij Grossman, who would later become the Soviet Union's chief authority in the Holocaust, made the comparison explicit. They would threaten people with guns as if they were under a spell, calling small children Kulak bastard, screaming bloodsuckers. They had sold themselves on the ideas that the so-called Kulaks were pariahs, untouchables, vermin. They would not sit down at a parasite's table. The Kulak child was loathsome. The young Kulak girl was lower than a louse. They looked on the so-called Kulaks as cattle, swine, loathsome, repulsive. They had no souls, they stank. They were the enemies of the people and exploded the rebel labor of others and there was no pity for them. They were not human beings. One has a hard time making out what they were. Vermin, evidently. To the west, at this point, the Soviet Union was a closed country and the Western visitors saw what Stalin wanted them to see. As usual, as I've mentioned in my previous episodes. During this period, with Europe and America whacked by the Great Depression, the now all-powerful Soviet leader presented them with the smiling, happy villagers. Bustling factories and statistics that showed a truly remarkable period of industrial growth. Unmatched, by any industrial nation in the 19th century. Of course, the Soviet Union remained a desperately poor country as every penny was reinvested into building industry rather than improving the quality of life, and later analysis would show that the five year plan barely matched the growth that would have been expected had the net been left in place. But in the early 30s, eager Western intellectuals flocked to Moscow to see the future in action. Stalin's Soviet Union, where a cheerful, prosperous facade masked a regime built on murder and terror was considered, at that point, by its Western sympathizers, to be the wonder of the world. And in the next episode, we shall be looking at The Forsaken. There was a book by uh, a team at Zuliandes, sent to me by a listener of mine, who spoke about the medical workers living there in these conditions. Because you see now that Stalin's Tetter has been introduced. We shall look in more detail about the Stalin's five-year plan. We shall look more in detail, because purges have happened, the murders are starting. Stalin has industrialized the country at a cost too inhuman to bother with. Men are resources. Comrades, there is no COBA At this point, finally, with all the explanations, we have come to what I wanted to make this series about. Five year old plan, the forsaken United States soldiers and workers, and the great terror and the Nazi Soviet pact in the next episode. If you thought these series were dark so far, then, oh boy, we are truly entering something different this time. До
0: Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv and we'll rummage even to the Western Border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the Great Motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you.
1: This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits.
0: Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.